And so the practice of meditation from the Buddhist or other traditions is not to become a meditator or a spiritual person or a Buddhist or join something, but it's rather to understand this capacity we have as humans to awaken. Now, what is that which we can awaken to? What is the Dharma which we can awaken to? Dharma is a Sanskrit and Pali word that refers to that which is universal, to the teachings and to the laws of the universe, teachings which describe it. And the Dharma or the laws, the way things work, are always here to be discovered. They're quite immediate. So there's a story many of you old meditators who've come to these things will have heard before of a pious man who very much believed in God. And one day, in the place where he dwelled, uh, it started to rain heavily, and it rained, and a big flood came. And he went from his first floor to the second floor of his house, and the water rose until he was on the roof. Someone rode by and said, Get in, my friend, I'll save you. The water's rising. He said, No, I believe in God. I really have faith. I believe. So he sent the rowboat away. It rained more and the water got all the way up to his neck and another boat came by picking up people. Get in, my friend, I'll save you. No, thank you. I have trust. I've lived my whole life. I believe in God. No need. The rowboat goes away. It gets up to his nose, just barely can breathe, and a helicopter comes over and lowers down a rope. Come up, my friend, save you. No, thank you. I believe. I have faith. I trust. So the helicopter goes away, it rains some more, and he drowns. He goes to uh, heaven after that, and after not very long there, he gets an interview with God, and it's his turn. So he goes in, you know, and he sits down and pays his respects and whatever, and then he says, you know, I just don't understand it. Here I was, your faithful servant. I was so trusting and prayed and so believing and the... I just don't understand what happened to me. And he sort of recounts all his circumstances. Where were you when I needed you? And God looks and kind of scratches his head and says, I don't understand it either. I sent you two rowboats and a helicopter. <laughs> and we wait somehow for God to come as some big flash or our spiritual awakening to be some wonderful otherworldly experience. What the Dharma is and what we can awaken to is the truth that's here when we leave our fantasies and our memories and things behind and come into the present. When we do that and we start to pay attention, we start to see some of the characteristics of the Dharma or the, the life in which we live. One characteristic is impermanence. Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, it says in one Buddhist sutra. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. That as you look, 
the more closely you observe, the more you realize that everything you look at is in change. Seeing changes, hearing changes, smelling, tasting, physical sensations are changing. All the experience in the body and mind, all the experience of the senses. It seems solid. That's the illusion of santati. It's like a movie. And when you watch the screen and get caught in the story, it seems like it's very real. But then you turn your attention to the projector or slow it down or focus your awareness very carefully. It's even possible to do. And you start to see that it's one frame after another, one appearing in the next, dissolving the next arising. And it's so for our life that it's really a process of change. Because that's so, because things don't last, unless you have something that lasts in your life, please raise your hand if you do. Has anyone gotten any mental states to last very long of any kind? Someone once raised their hand and said, yes, ignorance. It's lasted my whole life. <laughs> but basically, basically it's change. You sit down here and in one day, you don't even have to be a very adept meditator to get the point that it moves all the time, that it changes. And because things don't last, if we're attached to them being a certain way, what happens? This is one of the laws. What happens? We suffer or we get disappointed. Not because you should. You can be attached as much as you like. But even though you're attached, does it stop it from changing? You have a nice mental state and you try and hold on to it. Does it last anyway? So you start to see the laws of things, that things are impermanent, that attachment doesn't work, and that there must be some other way. There is actually what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity, the ability to flow with things, to see them as changing process. You also see not only are they impermanent and ungraspable, that there's suffering if we're attached to them, and that there's pain as well as pleasure in this world. It's part of what we were born into. If you decide to get off on this planet and get one of these things with ten little things on the end here and ten little things on the end there and stuff that grows for a while and that you that you put old, dead plants and animals in and mush them up in order to get it to kind of move around. If you choose one of these things, which you have, it's too late already, what is the nature of it? It grows up, it grows old, it dies, it gets sick sometimes. Sometimes it feels good and sometimes it hurts. There's pleasure and pain in it. Anybody have one that doesn't hurt sometimes? Okay. If you want that, you've got to go to another planet because it's not the way things are here. So you sit and you see, I'm just going to be with my body and mind. I'm not doing anything, no big deal. And what do you find? You find sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes it's restless. And you begin to relate to what Zorba called the whole catastrophe, all of it, instead of fearing the painful things and running away all the time and grasping after pleasant things, hoping that somehow by holding them they'll last, seeing that they don't. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to wander around the monastery at times and 
go up to people and just say, are you suffering much today? And depending what you'd answer, if you say yes, he said, oh, must be quite attached, and kind of giggle about it and go along. There wasn't much more to say. Okay. You see that you don't own it because it changes by itself, that you rent this house, you get it for a little while, and you can honor it and feed it and walk it and jog it if you want, but it's, it's not yours to possess. And you see, in fact, that none of these things are possessable because the nature of life is non-possession. You're an accountant in the firm. You get to count it for a while, and that's all. So we sit to awaken, and we awaken by coming into our bodies and our senses and starting to see the laws which govern life so we can come into a wiser relationship with it. What does this mean for our lives? Well, this kind of teaching really teaches a way of wholeness and awareness, of bringing our body and mind together and our heart and our action, being conscious with our speech, conscious with our eating, conscious with walking, making it a part of what allows us to grow and live. And to do this means accepting the fact of impermanence and of some pain and suffering and of the fact that we don't control it very much. I mean, you control some of it, but not very much and in a really limited way. If you can't accept those things, then you will probably want to stay in your fantasy because they are what you would encounter when you come here. Now, some people might ask, doesn't meditation fragment us away from the world? You say that it makes us more present. And it can if we become attached to solitude. If we see spiritual practice, we sit and try and get quiet and block everything out. Close your eyes and ears and nose or go into a cave. And it's not to say you shouldn't go and take a vacation in Yosemite or have periodic retreats. But fundamentally... For spiritual practice to be alive in our life, it has to be that we can use it in the supermarket while we drive, when we're walking, when we're dealing with our family, to make all of it a part of it and not to escape. Someone might ask in the same vein as doesn't meditation fragment us from the world. I say it can if one tries to escape, but what we're training here is an awareness that can be used throughout our day. Well, what about social responsibility? We're on the brink of nuclear war. There's exploitation and injustice in every country. There are 40 wars going on right now in Iraq and Iran and El Salvador and Nicaragua and Guatemala and uh, Jordan and Israel and Lebanon and Cambodia still and Laos and... I don't know, Namibia and Angola and God knows where else, all these places. And it's not just a story. It's painful for millions of people, as is starvation, as is 50,000 nuclear warheads, which could literally destroy most of the human beings and many or most of the major animals that live on the planet in a painful way, easily, quickly. Now, one must listen to one's heart in this. It's interesting. You can make a compelling case for different sides. On one side, you can listen to Gandhi, who says, to come face to face with the universal, all-pervading truth, one must be able to love the meanest creatures as oneself. 
To do this, one cannot stay out of any field of life. Those who say religion has nothing to do with politics do not know what religion really means. And from that point of view, you see that what's necessary is not to sit, but to act. There is starvation. Nuclear war is imminent if we don't do something. There is compelling need, even in this very rich and affluent society of people who are suffering in many ways. And what are we doing sitting around? It's, it's quite convincing. There's another side which is equally convincing. And that is, what is the cause of that starvation and all those wars and that suffering? What do you think is the source of it? There's enough oil, there's enough food, there's enough resources on this planet. The cause of it is greed, and the cause of it is prejudice and hatred. We hate people who, different religion, different skin color, different customs. We like our country, our family, our religion, our type. And so there's hoarding, and there's grasping, and greed and hatred and ignorance. And we've tried through revolution for many centuries. It's helped in some ways, but in others it just keeps going around because we haven't touched the root of the problem. The root of the problem is for someone to discover what it means to not be caught up by anger, what it means to be free from that fear or that prejudice which arises in human hearts and minds what it means to be unafraid of that which is painful as, that, as well as that which is pleasant, to be open, to have the heart open to all of what the world presents. So we don't need more oil and food as much as we need somebody who understands how not to get caught in anger and fear and prejudice. And that somebody is you. So instead of it being a luxury to meditate, from another point of view, it's a responsibility for anyone who can to figure out in their own being, in their own life, what it means not to be caught by these forces, to learn some new way, and then bring that to bear on the economic and social and political kinds of suffering as well in the world. It's a letter of mine that's a favorite, and I've read it many retreats. It's from a Nobel Prize winner named George Wald who's a biologist at Harvard. He wrote it in response to an argument about the starting of a Nobel laureate's sperm bank. Some irate feminists wrote into the paper saying, sperm bank, they should have an egg bank. Why just sperm? He says, you're right. Paulina takes an egg as well as a sperm to start a Nobel laureate. Every one of them has had a mother as well as a father.